to just, I don't know, casually watch the CNBC television channel and the Bloomberg and the Fox Biz, mostly through YouTube, but sometimes I'll just toss it on live if I'm eating lunch or something. And I've noticed this trend that's really been accelerating because I've been doing this probably for about two years now. And the trend that I've noticed in the last month or so is they'll have, Bloomberg just did this this morning, they'll have a guest on that talks about how landing, huh, there's no landing. This is really pulling out. We're going to be great. The Fed's got this. This is really going to be smooth. Look at employment rates. That's really our signal. We're going to be great, everybody. And then they'll go to commercial break. They'll come back from commercial break. And the next guest will tell them we're going to be in a deep recession. It's going to start towards the end of the year and it's going to go deep into the next year. It's going to be awful. It's going to hollow us out. And there's these two just really opposite messages. But I've been listening to their different arguments. And I think I'm falling down on the side of recession. Because if you look around, used car prices are struggling, which is usually a sign. RV sales are dropping. Beer sales are dropping. Disney sales are dropping. A lot of the elective or casual or nice to have things are dropping and debt rates are going up. Car payments are getting delayed. Credit card balances are accelerating. To me, if I had to bet some sad stat, I think I'd bet recession. I'm not, I'm not happy about it, but I think I'm betting recession. And a lot of times, since the Fed started this whole tightening shenanigans, so that way they could solve inflation, Bitcoin's really led the market. Bitcoin tends to go first where the rest of the market is going. And when Bitcoin drops, the rest of the market seems to drop thereafter. It's just, you know, on, it's on old business time, not free market internet time. I definitely join you on the recession viewpoint. And I think there's many ways to parse the positive economic data that kind of takes the positivity out of it. One such positive measure is that Japan in quarter two experienced GDP growth that was, or maybe total GDP numbers that were sort of above the pre-pandemic nominals. And the problem with that was that the growth was entirely in their export sector and their domestic consumption actually shrank, but it offset because they had this surge of exporting GDP numbers. And the problem there is that we can see that because these numbers are lagged, we can see that all of the drivers of export demand have fallen. So the third quarter will be much worse for sure. But on top of that, it appears that there are some issues with accounting for GDP numbers in a higher inflation environment. And so GDP numbers between the Ministry of Finance and other government agencies in Japan have started to diverge, which suggests poor accuracy of those numbers. And also the explanation is that likely they're intentionally allowing the confusion of inflation to sort of raise nominal prices and not control for inflation to sort of hide less interesting real numbers. Also in the subject of negative economic numbers, China has had a youth unemployment problem since you know, 2017, 2018. But it's recently gotten so bad that the PBOC is not reporting youth unemployment as a statistic in more in China. That means that the number is so bad that they believe that it is politically expedient to just allow everyone to be uncertain as to the state of youth unemployment, but not tell them directly. That's a really big red flag. Also, the PBOC chairman was recently fired and they have a new chairman. My personal view is that only happens when the previous economic narrative expressed by the former chairman is no longer supportable. And so the narrative was, don't worry about second quarter growth. China's going to come back in the third and fourth quarters in the second half of the year. And that's clearly not happening now. On top of that, China Evergrande, and I'm not mispronouncing that, it is actually Evergrande A with an E at the end, which is probably the most 
problematic real estate construction company in the world with massive amounts of debt that owes people money for apartments that it has not yet built. It borrowed money ahead of breaking ground on many apartments. And Chinese households that purchase those not yet built apartments, they're still on the hook for those mortgages while the company is going bankrupt. This in many ways is kind of a Lehman moment for China. I mean, this is a full-blown financial system and real estate crisis. And if export demand around the world is collapsing, the only way for China to experience growth would be growth of domestic consumer demand. But 70% of household net worth, household wealth in China is tied up in a real estate sector that is crashing, that is having a financial crisis. So there is no source of growth for China, and therefore, there is no source of growth for the world, in my view. Also, that beer number, let me tell you, I had a coupon for 20% off beer, and I didn't use it. So the economy must be really bad. Yeah. I mean, when's the last time you went to a movie? Also, it's just uh, just those things you just don't do as much. Hold on. We d- we did go to a movie, and we saw Mission Impossible, and it was the most incredible thing. I went to a movie kind of recently, too. But it's been like a year. It's been more than a year. Maybe since before COVID, since I went to a movie. Yet. Have you not seen the new Mission Impossible movie? It's incredible. No. Incredible. Uh, I did see I did see the most recent one to catch up. I'm more of a movie guy at you know, but at home. That's my that's my thing now. Do you have a projector? Is it like a home no, box office experience? It could be better. I have opted to stack sets instead of upgrade the home theater to but it's definitely acceptable, you know? It's got proper surround sound. I think when I hear our our management team, if you will, of the economy, I like the management team. When I hear the management team talk about the economy, what I hear is sincerity in a lot of their takes. Not all of them, but I hear sincerity. I think they believe what they're saying. And I think it comes to a fundamental disconnect between the average people of these countries, the Chinese citizens or American citizens or European citizens and their daily life experience. Like the fact that I'm paying five nineteen a gallon for gas right now really hurts. I have to drive three kids around for different things. It really hurts. And they don't even pay for their gas. They get driven around. And it's generationally now. The people that are on the management team come from generations that were on the management team and have lived very good lives for a very long time. But someone's good life is undergoing a change because our favorite effective altruist, Sam Bankman-Fried, is back in jail. And it only took a few months of witness tampering and flagrant breaches of his bail conditions to get him there. And he's already asking for some leniency because he has started being inflicted, he said, with depression. And as a vegan, the conditions of the jail are extremely rough. So he's asking for some reconsiderations. And I don't know if this is true. I don't know if you've seen this. I've only seen it reported by a couple of outlets, but he apparently also got a special exception for the use of a laptop while in jail. Now, again, I want to stress, I've only seen it reported by a couple of places, but it's outrageous if that's true. I mean, I think bringing a USB into a US jail is a federal crime. So, I mean, the idea of getting a special dispensation to get a laptop, while I'm not super opposed to incarcerated persons having access to electronics, the issue there is that it would be a huge dispensation compared to other prisoners. And it it would kind of speak to the two-tier justice that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried has been experiencing. However, Martin Schreckelli was incarcerated in the same prison that Sam Bankman-Fried is being held in. And Martin said that it wasn't that bad. Here's what CNBC said, quote, the government had requested that Bankman-Fried be remained 
in jail in New York where he'd have access to a laptop with internet access for defense preparation. What other inmates have to do, according to CMDC, is they have to go to a metropolitan detention center, like central facility thing, where they can sit down at like this sort of rundown courthouse area with stations that are set up with computers to give prisoners limited access to internet. But in Sam's case, he gets to stay in his cell and get a laptop. I don't even, can you believe, who knew they even had Wi-Fi out there, but he's going to have internet access so he can do defense preparation. This is according to CNBC. That sounds implausible. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on August 18th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, with me. It's Chris. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. On today's show, we are going to discuss a little bit more of the context around the MilkSad vulnerability that affected the Bitcoin library. was going to talk about it last week, but we ran out of time. And it's actually really interesting. Touches on a whole bunch of personalities and, and Bitcoin history. So kind of fun to touch on. There was sort of an amusing um, IT blunder at the Bank of Ireland when individuals were allowed to withdraw more money from ATMs than their account balance. It's kind of a funny example of how the banking system doesn't just suck because of laws and rules. It also is kind of challenging technology for bank operators to uh, to navigate the risks involved. There is a new Ethereum ERC-20 US dollar stablecoin, and it is being produced by PayPal. This is absolutely huge news and not in a wow, crypto business, whatever. This just speaks to the world runs on stablecoins. The world runs on non-US government printed US dollars, euro dollars in a sense. And I think this is kind of the direction that global finance is moving towards. Stable coins and other assets that are potentially US dollar denominated moving on public blockchains and backed by who the heck knows what. In economics, I found an old paper by Zoltan Posnar, who's sort of a institutional mainstream guy talking about the monetary system, but he talks about all of the things that Bitcoiners love. Shadow banking, euro dollars, how fiat banking crises need to be backstopped by the government directly. I don't know if he directly talks about the inflation implications, but you know, basically when the critics are agreeing with you, you might be right. That's my view. And in altcoins, uh, some NFT creators were disappointed when OpenSea revealed that the royalties they'd be getting on their NFTs were actually kind of voluntary. It wasn't unstoppable code after all. Then we have an absolutely fire Bitcoin optex. So much in there. It's almost a whole episode. And to help us understand it, a Bitcoin trained large language model at chat.bitcoinsearch.xyz who can answer many of our Bitcoin questions. Then we have some boosts and that's our show. Hmm. Maybe we could hook that uh, large language model up to speech generator and uh, we have ourselves a backup team. If we ever need to take a little vacation. We'll see. See you. But let's talk about this uh, milk sad vulnerability. Great name. Makes me think of spoiled milk. I recall that it was really actually a vulnerability in the Lib Bitcoin Explorer tool, which I think multiple different software packages take advantage of, which is kind of why it got some attention because it's not just potentially one wallet or one one application that is vulnerable, but it could be multiple. 
I think it revolved around how it generates the random seed, right? LibBitcoin is a software library that you can download. I, I think it's a Python library, and it provides a couple functions. So people who can use the command line can do some Bitcoin stuff. And they have a command in there called bxseed. And looking at that command, you think, hey, that probably generates a Bitcoin seed. The problem is it uses a pseudo random number generator that only has 32 bits of system time, which I guess means entropy in this case. And that means that this function can only generate 4 billion seeds, whereas a Bitcoin private key is supposed to have 2 to the 128 bits of entropy, which I, I don't think anyone can even say that number. It's so large. It actually means that there's more entropy in a Bitcoin seed than there are theoretical atoms in the universe or molecules. Atoms are molecules, not sure. And so this seed generation tool is very unsafe. And maybe it was safe in the past, but it's certainly unsafe now. You can almost say this is not a bug. This is a cryptographic weakness. Like the thing performs as detailed and there is documentation that's kind of hard to read that suggests that, hey, maybe you shouldn't use it. But it's certainly very unsafe to create a seed generation tool that's very unsafe and then not name it like never use this for a real seed dot create seed or something like that. Yeah, going from that astronomical number to just 32 bits <laughs> is a uh... Well, I guess that's the kind of thing maybe you do back in the old day, but it sounds like people did actually lose funds to this. Uh, a theft occurred in July of 2023. That sounds like maybe another one in May. And a similar vulnerability was discovered in another wallet software, uh, Trust Wallet, which uh, also has its own CVE. This is a really common problem in operating systems too. Over and over again, it took really years for Linux to get its random seed generation and Windows to really get something in there where you could generate a seed that you could trust. And there's so many different little tricks they had to do to get it right. It's not just even the length too. It's about injecting random noise and all that type of stuff. Yeah, like reading data from the heat sink of the CPU or something. Crazy things like that. Yeah, or like in the case of Linux, there's there's some that ask you to input random characters or move the mouse sporadically, and it can generate some random noise from that. Roll the dice. Right. And, and this is the worst kind of vulnerability, because what happened was early Bitcoiners used this tool, or a few early Bitcoiners used this tool to generate a seed. Then they manually put that seed into like a hardware wallet or a paper wallet. And then they nuked that computer and they thought that they had a safe seed. And then they started receiving money to these addresses. And then one day all of the money is gone. So this is the worst vulnerability. And this gets to the heart of how seed generation and creating a truly random number is really, really difficult. Now, why is this additionally interesting? Okay, so for me, LibBitcoin was originally uh, developed mainly by Amir Ataki. And this is kind of a name that's sort of disappeared from Bitcoin. He's a, he was an early Bitcoiner. And I need to find this interview. But there was an interview where he's talking and he is so bonkers cool. I mean, first of all, he punches down on Vitalik because Amir Ataki and some like Barcelona anarchist collectives kind of supported Vitalik a little. And now he's a billionaire and, you know, won't even answer their calls or, you know, send a little love back. So uh, I mean, kind of, I, I love that. But then also he got very excited about Bitcoin. So he joined the Kurdish Liberation Army to fight Islamic State. And he shows up like in northern Iraq. And he's like, hey, guys, this Bitcoin thing is amazing. I'm going to set up a node. We're going to be able to do like international transactions to get us supplies. It's going to be so great. You're going to love it. And the, you know, the Kurdish commanders are like, hey, that's awesome, buddy. Now take this AK-47 and go fight ISIS over there. 
Right. And he's like, what? And he, and so he's like, literally, he was a frontline soldier in the fight against Islamic State. And then he goes back to uh, England. And, uh, you know, at the border, they're like, where have you been? He's been like, oh, you know, say, sorry, man, I was actually fighting in the, you know, Iraqi Civil War. And they're like, okay, we're going to need to take your, your passport. But then it's not like they arrest him or even, you know, talk to him too much. Then like a year later, they give him back his passport. So it's this funny, like English story of like the English government's like, oh, this is so awkward what you did, you know, but you were on the right side from our perspective. So I don't know if we can criticize you. Oh, let's just not talk about it. And and now he's, um, I think he has kind of a, a DeFi protocol that he's been working on called like dark something. That's like a cross supposed to be a cross chain DeFi protocol. So I mean, what a wild personality. And so this is the individual that's kind of associated with LibBitcoin, which basically stopped development after this BX seed weakness was solidified in there. And then the other big personality here is Andreas Antonopoulos, because his book, Mastering Bitcoin, which I have, which is just a great book to understand Bitcoin at a very low level, in my opinion, still, I think it's still a very useful book. There's some code examples in there that uses BXSeed. And so could probably imagine that some people read that book and were like, I'm pretty technical. I read Mastering Bitcoin. Okay, Mastering Bitcoin uses BXC to generate a private key. I'll just do that. And then they got their funds stolen. So I'm not criticizing uh, Andreas here. I mean, you know, specifically proof reading and reading all the code for every single tool you use forever. I mean, that's that's a great idea, but I could imagine making a mistake or, or not having the time to do it, uh, you know, 100% uh, perfect job on that. But, you know, it's in his book. And I don't know, I've been looking at his GitHub repo. Andreas, there are a lot of open pull requests to update your book and change that. Yeah, might be a good one to update. And, you know, not a huge change. Yeah, these things happen. All right. And the story with Andreas is, you know, he's a very early Bitcoiner. Mastering Bitcoin is an early book. He was a huge Bitcoin advocate. He testified in front of the Canadian Senate or or whatever house uh, one time. There's a great video of this. But he was kind of an early cypherpunk. And the next wave of sort of Bitcoin libertarianism, you know, kind of didn't like him. He was also interested in Ethereum. He wrote the book Mastering Ethereum. And so, you know, in a sense, elements of the Bitcoin community kind of kind of pushed back at him. And, you know, you can see he hasn't updated the book in a while. So he's probably sort of gotten less involved in the Bitcoin community just because of that sort of internal, like cultural element. Yeah, you know, that makes me wonder, Dad, as time goes on, there'll obviously be huge shifts. And potentially, there's going to be a lot more institutional people involved in Bitcoin. And what I mean by involved is they'll, you know, they'll manage their funds and they'll, they'll do all that, but involved as in booths at events and sending representatives to events and having speakers. And they're going to just be part of that layer of the Bitcoin community. If they, you know, this it's going to inevitably happen if these ETFs take off or some other, if they get involved in some other way. And that's going to be, that's going to be a culture clash and inevitably a shift. Maybe we'll no doubt find some happy medium somewhere in there. But I think it's going to be interesting to watch that kind of happen because that's got to be coming down the road. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting, the kind of cultural baggage we already have. There are you know, many Bitcoin developers with just very out there political and social views that they're not quiet about either. Well, there's room for all kinds in Bitcoin. In my experience, the people that have been disserved by the existing system the most were the first to be drawn to Bitcoin. And so you're going to have some folks on the personality fringes there as a natural result of that. And Bitcoin doesn't care if you're a libertarian, if you're a progressive, if you're from Iran, if you're from China. I guess where I was getting as as these different institutions come on and they start participating in the discussion. They're going to represent a different a different breed of Bitcoiners. And I wonder if 
some of the associations with the early on Bitcoiners will sort of be more of a distant path, you know? Um, I mean, we don't, when we think of gold, we don't really think about all of the horrible scammers that were involved with the initial gold rush. We don't really think about all of the gross things that happened and all of the human trafficking that happened and all of the deaths. We just, you know, it's not, it's just, it is part of gold's history. That are still happening. Yeah, yeah. It's, but it's not the first thing that, you know, comes to mind. Well, the, and the other funny thing about gold is because it's a commodity, you don't need a special financial license in the US to sell gold or promote gold. And so a lot of financial professionals who get caught doing unethical or illegal things in finance, they lose their licenses and then they end up working in the gold space because they don't need the licenses theirs. I know you are talking about Peter Schiff right now. I know you are. <laughs> Am I? Am <laughs> I? Is- that, you know that is Schiff's story, right? Is that he had a huge financial scandal. Was it the bank in Puerto Rico he yeah. had? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, I don't know. I think that maybe colored his outlook on gold a little bit. So do we care that a bank in Ireland was allowing people to take out more cash from ATMs than in their account? I think it's funny because in a way, identity is very important for banks to protect them because when this happens, then they can say, hey, Mr. Chris, we can see you removed more money than was in your account and we're treating that like an overdraft. Oh, they overdrafted people, huh? Well, I mean, they had to they had to kind of do an accounting afterwards because people were just like... That's what banks are, right? The, the bank is the ledger. The, the banks are a human implementation of the blockchain, just like we used to have phone operators that would take a plug out of one port and connect you to the plug to the other port. And then we eventually automated that. And uh, those systems are just prone to failure. And you'd think that the system wouldn't be even capable of giving you more money than is, is exists in the account, but it's all just numbers in a database. Is this actually an opportunity to talk about Bitcoin at a basic level? Do we have an in to do our beginning Bitcoin series again? We could. I mean, I was thinking you could have this flaw, like in the example of FTX, that would allow people to withdraw Bitcoin that is technically in the exchange, but more than what is in their balance. So you could have this you could have this kind of effect with Bitcoin, but it would be a software flaw on the exchange side. And that's exactly how the quote unquote Silk Road hacker got 500 or 5,000 Bitcoins out of the Silk Road because they had a wallet bug that allowed you to withdraw more than you deposited to their wallet. And um, I forget the name of the individual who unfortunately for him was arrested by the FBI who you know basically pinged the Silk Road wallet you know thou- hundreds or thousands of times and withdrew much more Bitcoin than he had um, deposited. And that's just a banking problem. That's literally the exact same thing that happened with this bank in Ireland. Yeah, it's an IT, it's an IT mistake. You know, the, the thing about literally with bank balances is that when you get a loan, right, they just create that balance in your account. But with Bitcoin, assuming the system's working correctly, that Bitcoin has to come from somewhere. It has to be allocated from somewhere. They have to have that Bitcoin if you're getting a loan in SATs. Right. It depends on the loan terms. So we could have a Bitcoin bank and I could give you a loan and denominate additional SATs to your account. But then it doesn't mean they're they're fully backed. You, you could withdraw them and then we could discover that I don't have um, SATs to allow other people to withdraw. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to need to see that on-chain data, Dad, before I take that loan. I'm going to need to see that. <laughs> I mean, who cares? Just take the loan and withdraw all the SATs, see what happens. <laughs> right, true, yeah. As long as I get my stats. <laughs> right. But I mean, then we could have, you know, spending policies. You have the loan, but you only have the right to withdraw 
10% of the balance every day or something like that. I mean, you could do all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you got to find the right institution with the, with the right uh, software. It'd be a lot easier, in my opinion, to just go clone some ERC-20 repo and make my own token and just print my own money and screw everybody else. <laughs> That's a great idea. But if it were such a good idea, wouldn't large American financial institutions be doing that already? Well, Dad, let me tell you about PayPal. They have the future of DeFi for you right now, today. And of course, PayPal, a U.S. public company listed on the NASDAQ index or exchange, has announced the launch of PYUSD, PayPal USD. It's a token that will be issued on Ethereum using their ERC-20 tokens protocol. And it will be backed, according to PayPal, with US dollar deposits, short-term US treasuries, similar cash equivalents, and you can redeem it one for one with US dollars. And I imagine you will also be able to hold it in your PayPal account. And of course, PayPal is you know basically just an online bank. And I believe they announced you can buy other cryptocurrencies in your PayPal account using their stablecoin. So, yay. Yeah. And so the question needs to be asked, why is PayPal doing this? And I think there are so many reasons. The most obvious one to me is that probably a large portion of PayPal's bottom line is payments to payment processors like Visa, like MasterCard, like Amex that charge you know, 1 to 1.5 to 2% of the transaction amount to process a transaction. And that's why PayPal encourages you to do a lot of internal PayPal transfers and to use your bank account directly because when you directly use your bank account to send a PayPal transaction, they're not going through a credit card payment processor. They're actually using either, um, gosh, what is it? Not a wire transfer, an ACH. They're likely using an ACH clearing, automated clearinghouse transfer, which is uh, much cheaper for PayPal to process since they have the infrastructure to do that than a credit card transfer. So a stable coin on Ethereum that they can also just move around in their SQL database between PayPal accounts if you're sending account to account with PayPal, it makes a lot of sense from a business perspective in my view. I guess they expect that people will feel that the PayPal brand brings legitimacy to it. PayPal has this, uh, you know, blockchain division now, and uh, they've released a couple of press statements about this. And um, it seems to be indicating they, they also think people will use this in the DeFi ecosystem. And I don't really understand that. I guess it is an ERC-20 token, so I suppose it's totally possible. You absolutely can. The part that I can't understand is why PayPal would do this right now when you got that hawk in the SEC and you just have the most treacherous regulatory environment for stablecoins possible right now. It just seems like PayPal is essentially becoming an enemy of the banks and they need relationships with the banks and the regulators to function because of the business they've decided to get into. I just can't understand the logic to it. Let me take the counter on that. Please. Perhaps PayPal and their management are very politically connected and understand the direction that the winds of political action are moving. And they think that now is the perfect time to be one of the first corporate movers of a large existing financial company to issue a stable coin and that maybe they can eat, say, Circle's lunch or Tether's lunch. And because the stable coin is a bearer instrument, most people probably won't take advantage of that attribute and will just have a PayPal dollar account balance and they can kind of force you to buy the t- stable coin in their app when you're transacting in dollars. One, for every person who's holding 
a PayPal stablecoin. PayPal is getting their US dollars and can now invest them in short-term US assets that are currently returning very high interest rates. So that's a great business for PayPal. Two, you can drive demand by having this bearer instrument that people can then put into DeFi contracts. And it's not your fault. You don't like you didn't do that. PayPal didn't do DeFi. Someone else did DeFi with PayPal's thing that you can do that with. But on the flip side, you also have the ability to freeze funds, to freeze tokens, a token freeze ability that Tether has, that Circle has, all of the stablecoin issuers have that. So if you get a letter from the government, you can comply by freezing people's funds and giving their KYC information to the authorities. So I just see this as a total win short term for PayPal and long term. I think this Mm. speaks to PayPal thinks there's a problem with the banking system or that it's not good enough. And this is better technology. So it's a mix of they probably see consumer demand and their story to the regulators and the banks are we're the ones you can work with. You can trust us. And this internationalizes PayPal's dollar business because now someone can take the stable coin, send it via Ethereum to a wallet in another country that PayPal has sort of, you know, a high cost of doing international transfers because you have to keep liquidity on both sides of the banking system to do international transfers between countries. You know, this is why MoneyGram and and TransferWise and all these companies that are crazy with the fees that they charge people on transactions, you know, 5%, 10 you know, 8%, whatever, just very large transaction fees for sending dollars overseas. They're not incredibly profitable. They have high costs too, because the cost of banking across jurisdictions and having the liquidity to move funds back and forth is very costly and difficult. So if PayPal can kind of you know, enter that market and bridge that and reduce those costs, I just think it's a, it's a huge win for them probably. Uh, also, by the way, I would never hold this or transact with this, <laughs> just to be clear. I agree. Uh, and we were talking before the show, and the reason why I say that there seems to be consumer demand is, I think you were saying you saw somewhere that it's estimated a, a very large percentage of Ethereum's blockchain traffic is essentially just stablecoin traffic. Not Ethereum. Every blockchain, probably except Bitcoin, because Bitcoin doesn't have a stablecoin. Coinmetrics has a new report, and I think they say that 70% of all crypto volume transactions is stablecoin transactions, stable USD denominated coins. So this speaks to we live in a euro dollar world, it's dollar denominated, people just want to transact in dollars. And that's consistent with the Bitcoin philosophy or the, the, the value proposition of Bitcoin. We know we live in a dollarized world. The Bitcoin innovation is we now have another asset other than dollars that we can self custody. And these stable coins do not give you that ability to be clear. Sure, the stable coin is a bearer asset, but the model of value is that it's just a token and the real money are the US dollars or treasury securities that PayPal is holding. So the token has to get PayPal's approval or tacit approval to have any value. So you can't really do anything too exciting with this. You know, you can't donate it to the whatever anti-ISIS Kurdish militia because PayPal will freeze those coins and, you know, report you to the government. Dang it. When you think about the reality of this U.S. dollar-based world, where there's just such demand to transact and move funds around in dollars, perhaps it, it gives some insight into why we seem to go to any length to save the banks, because we're saving a system that essentially props up this entire thing. And also, I think you hinted at it by describing banks as balance sheets. A balance sheet has two sides, an asset and a liability. And the model of the current banking and financial system is that 
every asset on one bank's balance sheet is the liability of other banks. So what does that imply? It implies a fragile system. When a single bank has a balance sheet impairment, it affects the value of all of their liabilities that are assets on other banks' balance sheets. To me, this implies that our traditional model of counterparty risk banking and finance has a upper limit to how big it can scale because you get to a point where there are so many banks, so many balance sheets that you're just you're always going to have impaired balance sheets. That's called doing business. Doing business is taking risk and some people benefit, some people lose. But on the whole, we hope that there's more benefit than loss. So banks have to take losses. Financial institutions have to take losses. That's how economic activity works. But if you have a system where every time you take a loss, it weakens a constellation of entities connected to you, that's very fragile. So traditional finance is fragile. And it seems clear to me that the world is searching for another model for both finance and banking. And that's something that Zoltan Hozar has been talking about for over a decade. Do you remember when we first brought him up on the podcast, Chris? I don't think I remember specifically, but it's definitely a name I know we've mentioned. Zoltan, I think, is pretty famous for originally being a big guy in terms of financial analysis at Credit Suisse. And of course, Credit Suisse is no more, but I don't think Sultan will have problems finding another gig because his writing about the financial system has kind of been a mainstay of people interested in monetary economics, both on the right and on the left of the issue. On the right, I would say you have um, gold bugs, Bitcoiners, individuals who are skeptical about the future of the US dollar denominated financial world. And on the left, you have modern monetary theorists like Stephanie Kelton and Rohan Gray, who essentially react to the information or the, 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 the worldview that Zoltan has, but they come to a very different conclusion. They don't conclude that the dollar system is ending and we need a new model for finance. The modern monetary theorists conclude that we need to nationalize banking and have a open political process around the allocation of capital and that the current banking system is de facto nationalized because there are implicit government backstops on losses for certain banks. But it's currently unfair because the banking system cosplays as a private entity that can privatize its profits, but actually it's operating with implicit free government insurance provided by the taxpayer. So it's a vehicle for inequality. That's the view from the sort of left-wing modern monetary theory side. So the interesting aspect of this article from Zoltan from 2011 is that he examines activity in the shadow banking side from two perspectives. The demand for shadow banking euro dollar deposits and the supply. And a decade ago in 2011, he identifies a massive shortfall in demand for shadow bank deposits. He articulates a deflationary view of global money based on the way that financial institutions are attempting to create dollar assets to use in transactions. And this is very similar to the view expressed by Jeffrey Schneider, the Eurodollar University principal, who has also a deflationary view of the US dollar system. And what's really interesting about this article 
is that it basically explores the inherent liquidity risk in the shadow banking system. And it does so in a platform that is available to every uh, you know, major central banker. Zoltan is a very well-known intellectual on this subject. And so this is an interesting piece of history because it identifies that we have had 12 years at least to explore the monetary problems of our euro-dollar-based shadow banking world, and no one has done so. And 10 years ago, Zoltan said, if this system is not re-architected, the liabilities of the shadow banking system will end up on the sovereign balance sheet of states, and no one has done anything. And still, the Federal Reserve pretends to control the economy by playing around with the Fed funds rate. Right. And we see it's really doing nothing. I mean, perhaps a recession, but nothing really in far, as far as controlling inflation or fixing the supply chain. And uh, really nothing in reforming these banks. And we've just centralized more risk with the actions they have taken. And so why is this on a Bitcoin podcast? Because Bitcoin Tina, there is no alternative in my view. If you believe that Jay Powell and Christine Lagarde and our political and monetary institutions are well run and know what they're doing, which means that you're disregarding a lot of facts uh, surrounding their activities and you know their statements, then you don't have to do anything. But if you question the official narrative that the Federal Reserve can minutely manage the economy by turning dials and you know a single interest rate is like the ring of mortar that rules all economic activity, then you need to have some insurance. And I don't see anything other than Bitcoin that provides it because all other assets have counterparty risk. And I'm including Ethereum in that because there are massive founders who you know, might be bankrolling the entire Ethereum ecosystem. Bitcoin is different because it was the first. It had a fair distribution. No one knew it could be money. And so they didn't hoard it. They didn't, you know, it, it circulated, it, it spread. And now there are many Bitcoiners, many hodlers, and it's hard for any one party to exert a huge amount of control over it, which is different than any other asset in my view. And we are watching the end result of the control that the central management does have, the economic management team does have. See, I, I am a little more cynical I think they are very aware of the issues that were brought up by Zoltan in 2011. And I think they don't have a lot of options or courses of uh, correction other than to just slowly manage the decline. And we don't even realize that it's been this way for so long because we're within the system. And it's not until you really kind of wrap your head around Bitcoin, at least for me, that I had another model to compare the system to. I needed a A-B comparison. And I, I really think that a lot of times on this show, we talk about like this this inevitability of all of this math that's going to cause, you know, a lot of economic hardship. But I think we've, we've already been there for quite a while. I think it really started in 2008 for us here in the States. And it's just a process of managing the decline such that it's slow. That's what they do. They kick the can and they slow it down. That's what the management team does. And so we don't really notice it unless something dramatic happens like inflation and, you know, food goes up 30%. Then we notice, but we start to adjust. People have kind of stopped complaining about the price of goods and fuel. It's sort of, you know, kind of just accepted now. And we just sort of sit here for a bit and they just manage the decline. And it's not something that's going to happen. It's something that has been happening. And this article from Zoltan just gives us little glimpses that, oh, yeah, we've been living in this reality for a while. Another view of it is that the official policy, the goal is to interrupt creative destruction, that there are sort of natural, creative and destructive social and economic forces that force change. And that's 
good because humans are biological beings. We grow and die. Why shouldn't our institutions grow and die? Why shouldn't our businesses grow and die? We know that if something remains too long, too old, it becomes kind of static and out of touch and, you know, potentially harmful. And, you know, when I say that, I think of Microsoft or, you know, these these large companies that achieved monopoly at an early state and then politically protected themselves so that they couldn't be disrupted anymore. Google, you know, I think falls into that category today. And I think this problem gets even worse with a even more managed economy. If you have an economy where a, you know, if Congress is electing a board that then decides we invest money in solar production over here and we don't invest in natural gas or nuclear over here and they start making decisions about who are winners and losers at a more fundamental level, I think this problem just gets worse because their incentives will naturally be to choose things that entrench the existing system that continues their power so that way they can continue doing the good things the management team does. And I think this is perhaps my critique or question with the modern monetary theory viewpoint. I think there are two big questions there. One is, I think I think that MMT philosophy assumes that demand for money can never change. So you can print as much money as you want. You can you know create state-controlled finance. But people will never start using anything other than the legally mandated dollar as a transaction currency. Like you can't kill the dollar. There's, there is no alternative to it. And so they have this kind of static view of monetary history that monetary medium don't change. So I think that's a big risk. But what I also don't understand is there's a view that the banking and financial system has used their political connections to get favorable treatment. And so we need to nationalize them and turn them into an open political process, how we allocate capital and resources. But we know that the political process already doesn't work. So are they assuming that if they make the political rules, it will just work now? Like they have the perfect philosophy and that the previous philosophies are all wrong. I just don't, I don't quite understand how they think it's going to work out. And it's so clear that they would be influenced by, you know, the military establishment, by every large tech, every, every large group that has influence over Congress would have influence over creating this process. Every average citizen knows that. Anybody would know that. It's just so obvious and clear that that would be so perverted. And kind of the impetus for Bitcoin, as Satoshi talked about, how you can't really over history trust institutions to kind of protect the users of their currency. At a certain point, the institution confiscates the user's savings via inflation or outright confiscation. That's just happened throughout history. You can't deny that. So Bitcoin tries to take the politics out of money. And that's, of course, that's a political statement in and of itself, but it's very subversive and radical, frankly. Yeah, I wish we had learned about inflation in school. You know, I wish they I wish they taught the, the harms of inflation so people understood. Even 2% is theft. Uh, and it's and they, that's their target rate. That's their, their target rate is just slow, casual theft over time. <laughs> so I think that inflation is theft is a very satisfying meme. But the thing is, it's not like inflation is a completely centrally managed process. Money creation, even in the euro dollar system, is highly decentralized. So there are sources of money creation that are not official government policy. Right. I think where where I think the meme has a little bit of wood behind the arrow is it so obviously incentivizes policy where the 
default is just do nothing and we can just keep spending and we don't have to fix it because we know we can make it up over time through inflation. It'll make the debt seem like nothing. You know, like, you, you know, it just architects the way all of the spending incentive. It's like the it's at the root of the thinking that has led to this excessive, excessive spending. If, and if, if they didn't have that ability, then, then they would have had to they would have had to make better policy. And so that's why it feels ultimately a bit like theft, because they get away with it and we pay the price. It's essentially a tax. So what you're saying is because our fiat monetary system gives policymakers the ability to issue excessive debt at the government level and fund their political projects, it turns politics into the game of getting enough political consensus to create debt to fund your projects. And that's the superpower of modern politics. And that's why there's no incentive to sort of deal with hard issues. Is that, am I kind of getting the right hint? Yeah, totally. And, and, you know, why we don't really think about spending today as costing in the future, because it's so far removed that they get away with it today and they just keep doing it over and over again. And, you know, they know somebody knows. It's just, that's why it's, that's why I feel like there's some wood behind the arrow, but I think your point of there's lots of places where money can come from and it's not just government spending. That's a fair one that doesn't get enough attention. And it's also just human nature to, you know, be really bad at what you do. Like, it's not surprising that humans are bad at politics, bad at managing, you know, societies, bad at running companies. You know, we just generally suck at most things, is my view, not to be too pessimistic. Because think of the Liz Trust British bond crisis of, was it last year or the year before, when the trust government in Britain released a budget proposal, and they were just going to do all the free market philosophical things like cut taxes, but also increase spending, you know, like like Ronald Reagan. And it just in- entirely blew up. And the market for, I think they're called boons or buts, they have some funny word for these bonds that they, uh, they mm-hmm, issue, mm-hmm. sovereigns, basically demand in that market dried up. And because of the way that the British pension system was using these treasuries as a form of kind of hedged, you know, cash flow management, they discovered that uh, several pensions were immediately insolvent as a result of a sudden movement in interest rates on these. these, um, What a political disaster that was for her too. Right. And that toppled her government. But now the Mm -hmm. next government, you know, Rishi Sunak's government, it's not like they're serious. You know, they're trying their hardest to not engage with any serious uh, issues or topics as well. So it's not like just creating more fiscal discipline is going to solve all of these problems. It's just part of, uh, you know, a big human problem in my view. This is why another meme that kind of fits this scenario really rules, not rulers. When it comes to something that is a representation of our time and our effort, right? That's what I think about when I buy sats is I mined my day job. I worked hard so that way I could stack a little bit. And that's, that's a representative of the time and energy and life that I put into that work. And that is hopefully that that life's energy will be passed on to my children too and so when it's something that to me is like a representation of what i what i put into things and it's really important to me i actually think that this is a perfect perfect example of a distributed consensus system that is governed by math and rules not by ruling and it doesn't need artificial intelligence it doesn't need some sort of you know company running it doesn't need a board of directors it is just what computers have, have are with the internet and the computational and storage capabilities it is what computers are great at at a basic level and you can trust it to do that kind of stuff and i could never ever see in my lifetime ever putting that level of trust into any of these institutions now 
And you certainly should not trust your NFT marketplace to protect your programmatic royalty payments. Oh, my monkey JPEGs, my big investments. That was your retirement. You were going to issue that Jupiter Mm -hmm. Broadcasting monkey JPEG Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. live off the royalties because they had to pay you some residual fee every time it was transacted. We had that really neat Python script that would just generate different monkeys with different gold chains, you know, and that, so, you know, you could get like the rocket series or the Jupiter series and, you know, we'd print a few thousand of each and then, you know, then the Python script would kick out a few more and they're going to be great. I mean, if that doesn't sound like the basis for a retirement fund, I don't know what (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) seems really like a clever investment. I don't understand. And one cool thing about NFTs is because they are, you know, if they're receipts on a blockchain or if the full NFT is there, like in the case of ordinal inscriptions on Bitcoin, is you can add additional contracting restrictions to transact them. So you could theoretically create an NFT where to transfer it to a new individual, you also have to send a payment to the person who mints the NFT. And that was the story of many of these NFTs that were issued on Ethereum through the OpenSea NFT marketplace. And they have a blog post explaining that, hey, sorry, uh, turns out, um, you know, we can't enforce that because, you know, we didn't do it right. We didn't create a new smart contract for NFTs that created a consensus rule that forced payments to the originators. It was just something we did on the front end and kind of hid that from you. And it turns out all the other NFT marketplaces don't want to pay royalty payments and no one really wants to pay royalties. So we're going to just not do that anymore. So surprise. You know, looking back at it in retrospect, it's like the NFT market went ahead and implemented all of the third party risk of the traditional like art sales market with scammy art salesmen and middlemen and and agencies, but then decided since it's digital, we could make these things happen at scale. And so they can just, they can pull off scams that it took the art community hundreds of years to develop and they can pull them off now in one season, just like one quarter. (laughs) Yeah, it's so obvious in retrospect when I look at it now. (laughs) Speed running through the history of financial scams. That is crypto. (laughs) Well, this year episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pods brought to you by my podcast network, Jupiter Broadcasting over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We tried out a really adventurous distribution in Linux Unplugged 523. It's called Rhino Linux. The episode title is Ride the Rhino. And it's a group that is trying to make a rolling Ubuntu that you could use as like your development workstation or whatever. And they're grafting on Arch-like tools to give you access to additional repositories. And they're building in some meta package managers so you don't have to worry about snaps or flat packs or dev files. And you can just install whatever you want, even right straight from a GitHub repo. Pretty neat. A lot of power there. Kind of a cool team. We talk about that in Linux Unplugged 523. Lots of great shows over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. You also had a really interesting self-hosted show, which discussed a tool you can self-host for archiving content online. That just sounded really, really interesting. Yeah. Build your own little archive.org if you want. We'll definitely be testing that out at some point. But as we alluded to, this week's Bitcoin Optech Newsletter 264 is so awesome. The first exciting news is about a discussion about silent payment addresses and adding expiry data to these addresses. The silent payments is a way to create a payment address that you can post somewhere. And then when 
people who want to pay to this address, they take the address and they kind of tweak it with their own private key, and then they send the payment. And on-chain to Chainalysis or a third party, it just looks like a transaction. It's not clear that it's connected to this silent payment address. But on your side, your wallet is scanning the blockchain and can find these silent payments. And the concern is that if you create this standard without an expiry without an expiry date on the silent payment address, we could have silent payment addresses circulating from years and years ago that people have for- forgotten about or lost access to the wallet, and people could still be donating to them. So that could just end up losing a lot of funds. So this is a really nice proposal to add some sane expiry data to these addresses to sort of prevent foot guns from people accidentally sending funds to addresses that are no longer in use or or whatnot. That really seems neat. I want to, sometimes I hear about this stuff and I just want it right now. That seems like a nice little addition. The other thing that I'm sure you noticed in the Optech was some updates on serverless pay joins. There's, that's something that's been in draft for a little bit. And I think, man, you combine something like silent payment addresses potentially with pay joins or something like that, silent pay or serverless pay joins, I should say. I'm feeling really kind of good about the future of privacy on Bitcoin. And there's also a really interesting field report from Brandon Black of BitGo, or formerly BitGo. We don't know where he works now. And he's actually been on the podcast explaining ordinal inscriptions. So his field report is about how BitGo launched MuSig2, which is a Taproot-enabled multisig. And there are some definite benefits to using it versus script-enabled multisig, which if you have a multisig wallet today, you're using native SegWit or wrapped SegWit script-enabled multisig. Essentially, for BitGo that manages huge numbers of addresses and large numbers of wallets, fees on-chain are very expensive for them. They make a lot of transactions, they pay a lot of fees. And so the compact nature of Taproot, MuSig, Multisig means they save a lot of money on fees. They also provide additional privacy to themselves and their users because these multi-sig addresses look like single-sig addresses. They're indistinguishable. And so this means that there are fewer distinct features across addresses and Bitcoin transactions, which means it's harder to sort of do chain analysis and identify entities and figure out what they're doing on chain. Reading this report also brings to mind that a lot of protocol development is going to be driven by companies in the space. And so I think that one of the sort of quick takeaways of the block size war is that companies in Bitcoin bad, users running their own nodes good. I mean, maybe in some situations, but it's obviously much more complicated because Brandon and the BitGo team actually worked with the Taproot Musig proposal and they got features added that made it additionally useful for them. So I think it's a good example of how commercial interests have their own interests. Sometimes they're going to be contrary to decentralization and the vision of Bitcoin that we want. Other times they're going to have very complementary interests and the things they want in Bitcoin will make Bitcoin better for all of us. Yeah, we've seen this play out in free software and open source software for 20 years now. What's your take, Chris? Do you think that Bitcoin is going to be more community motivated than the Linux Foundation and the Linux kernel or less? It's hard to really say, but I think one thing that the overall Bitcoin community has going for it is 
13 years of a head start of building out their own circular economies, building their own tools, creating their own community themes and memes, right? Like that's, they're further along, I should say, than I think Linux and the Linux community was when the Red Hats and the Linux foundations and, and early on there was others like Caldera and IBM that got in pretty early, but you know what I mean? Like that was, they figured it out in the late nineties, early aughts. Bitcoin's been going for a lot longer at this point. And I, so I think a lot of the culture stuff has been established. And because Bitcoin's always going to be a peer to peer technology, even if there became like a, a, a big, huge foundation that had 15 other foundations below it and became like an umbrella foundation for all these projects, even tangentially, barely related to Bitcoin, like the Linux Foundation does now. I think you'd still have that original kind of punk community because of that peer-to-peer nature. I think it's always going to be a little bit, it's always going to be there. So I don't, and because we've gotten such a head start, I don't think, don't think it's as, as malleable. I still expect there to be in 15, 20 years, I still expect it to be a transition such that it barely looks anything like it does now, but there will still be the types like you and I that are into it at this level. And because it's money, I think that there is a incentive to care that doesn't quite compare to other types of free software. I mean, you need to be quite special to care a lot about the kernel that your computer is running. Whereas, do you care about being able to save for retirement? Yes, everyone does. Yeah, and there's a lot of OG hodlers. I mean, what is it still like something 70% of the Bitcoin that's out there now is just in long-term storage by hodlers. Uh, and that's incentives. You look at, look at Jack. Uh, he's going to, he's always going to be both of them, both Jacks. They're always going to be a very vocal voice in this space. They're always going to have a large bag that incentivizes their actions and, and, and activates their protective mode. You know, the Bitcoin community in a lot of ways acts as a defensive mechanism. It's an immune system. That, of course, will have that optech linked in the show notes. Before we get to feedback, though, there's one other link you might want to check out this week, and it is a large language model that has been trained on Bitcoin. It's called ChatBTC, chat.bitcoinsearch.xyz. I asked it about the uh, vulnerability we talked about earlier in the show and uh, the MilkSad vulnerability. It did not have any information for me. So I don't know how current it is. So I'm using the Holocat model, which is read every mailing post and stack exchange question. And I asked it about the Bitcoin RGB protocol. This is what it said. RGB protocol is a smart contract system that brings full support of smart contracts to Bitcoin and Lightning. It was developed by the LNPBP Standards Association, supported by Fulgur Ventures, Bitfinex, Hojo Foundation, Pandora Prime, and Deba. The development of RGB took more than four years and involved collaboration between these companies. The goal is not just to enable assets on Lightning, but to build a programmability layer for Bitcoin and Lightning that can unlock other use cases besides tokens, such as decentralized autonomous organizations and identities. So I think it's kind of a good introduction to RGB, actually. Yeah, that's really neat. I've I've felt for a while when we first started seeing these language models that where they're really going to be powerful is when they are given a very specific problem. You know, go understand this specific domain. Don't try to understand the entire world like ChatGPT and Bard do. Just go read all of these mailing posts. That's such a great use case for that. I want to see that same thing for all kinds of open source projects. I'm going to play around with that this weekend. That's fun. Now, if only we had a language model that could read the feedback and generate puns, that would be really cool. (laughs) 
yeah, well, maybe we could start feeding the machine. You know, you can always email us Bitcoin Dad Pod at protonmail.com. You could try Twitter or X at Bitcoin Dad Pod. Um, and the real time chat that goes all week long in the Matrix channel. Just get Element or Fluffy Chat or something like that. We have details in the description. And we have some boosts this week, including a boost, a BB boost from Mere Mortals Podcast. 3838 sats was responding to our suggestion that we might not be able to watch the big lebowski sitting down with mere mortals because he also has a fitness podcast and he says nah i'm not that fitness crazy half the point of staying alive is so i can be lazy and eat crap i have a huge sweet tooth (laughs) yeah yeah i get you yeah (laughs) i still think he's pretty fit though yeah he looks he looks ripped The Golden Dragon comes in with a row of ducks, 2,222 sats from Fountain. He says, boost! And I think he's feeling bullish with these ETFs coming out. He thinks like people will start spending money, especially once that money printer turns back on. He's excited for the long-term price. As Odell says, stay humble, stack sats. Thanks, Dragon. Corp boosts in 5,000 sats. I spent the weekend learning about Lightning Wallet so I could use Bitcoin with near zero fees. I ended up with the Phoenix Wallet as it was the best option I could see for a KY-free hot wallet, but it came with a compromise on privacy. They state that they will be using the trampoline protocol soon, which should resolve the fact they know who I'm sending sats to. I now see the reason why Bitcoin Dad and Chris said you should only move a little bit into Lightning Wallets since a missed hash lock contract could cost you. Thanks for the show, BD and Chris. P.S. Now I can boost in the shows Chris does on Jupiter Broadcasting as a thanks for the content. Thank you so much, Torped. Pew, pew. Yeah, Torped, thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking at Phoenix Wallet seriously now because they're going in such a great direction. The iOS version and the Android version are officially un... The iOS and the Android version are officially incompatible right now, so warning to listeners out there, they do not... You cannot move between those two right now. They need to update the iOS version because they're moving really fast on the Android version. I'm also... Again, these are all just Chris's watching, not using, but I'm also keeping a really close eye on Mutiny Wallet because it is a progressive web app, also available as an Android app. But in your web browser, you can spin up essentially a disposable on-chain and lightning wallet that uses voltage for on-demand channel liquidity on the back end. And I think that's pretty exciting, too, because voltage is very large. You can kind of get lost in that noise. And that can be a pro thing for privacy in some regards. So I'm watching those. I'm not making any recommendations, but I think the future is really bright for moving in and out of Lightning privately to your on-chain wallet. We're just going to have a plethora of choices in about six months. Thanks for the boost and the conversation, Torp. At Halleck sends in 10,000 sats. Thanks for the recommendations, Chris. I've had the best results with Zeus, and I will look into Lightning Terminal. That's from last week. We made some recommendations for managing a Lightning node. Zeus is the one you want if you got a lightning node and you want a nice little UI to view your balance, to view your channel status, to close channels. You can do all of that with Zeus. It's like a little mini lightning wallet management app. And it's done so brilliantly, you don't even realize it's as powerful it is until you start using it. And Zeus just also keeps going from strength to strength. It's also free software, not available for iOS. But you can also connect Zeus to an Albi wallet. And so you can manage your Albi account without ever having to go to the web. You can do it all from Zeus like you would connect to a standard Lightning node. And I just think that's a massively powerful combination, too. So I'm just really pleased with the state of software. And I'm really, really thankful for all the boosts. Well, we got four boosts, (laughs) Um, 21,060 sats. 
not a strong showing for this week's episode. Uh, and if you've been thinking about boosting in, next week would be a great, or you know, responding to this episode would be a great opportunity to show a little support for the show. It is a value for value production. And early on, we really debated between ads and value for value. And there's just zero doubt more money would come from ads. Even, even in the state of the current ad market, one ad would make more money than we made from boosts easily. But I mean, we've really seen over and over again, a lot of the content creators inevitably end up regretting their sponsorship choices, even when they seemed really logical and safe at the time. Maybe we'll have to bridge that one day, but right now it's been been really nice not to have to even taint the show with any of that and just stay 100% focused on the audience. But there has to be some value for value exchange for that to keep working. We also got a reoccurring boost via Albi, and I believe that's our friend with Oaknode giving us a simulated subscription boost. That's our show. Thank you so much yeah. for the support and messages. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on August 18th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, with me, Chris. And thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.